I began writing today's sermon the day after a fairly long and difficult presbytery meeting. The day before the meeting, all of the mission planning team had resigned, citing extreme levels of abuse from certain congregational representatives across presbytery. There were a lot of raw nerves, hurts, accusations, allegations, and so on. The old saying, there's no quarrel like a Kirk quarrel comes to mind, which is an indictment of the church if ever there was one. The story is told of the wee boy who instead of singing, I will make you fishers of men, perhaps unwittingly sang, I will make you vicious old men. <laughs> From the mouths of babes. Anyway, I had a day's annual leave, which was good because I was tired and feeling a bit deflated. I'd chosen today's readings the week before. The readings come from the lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of readings, which we are going to be using for the next wee while between focus group series. As we will discover, the themes of patience and persistence come to the fore as we seek to respond faithfully to our ever-faithful Father God in sometimes challenging circumstances. The parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 is prefaced by Luke. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Note, firstly, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. In the preceding chapter, Jesus has spoken of the coming of God's kingdom. He speaks of people running off to follow all sorts of folk who will claim to be the Messiah. He tells his disciples that before he comes again, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Later on in chapter 18, he again predicts his death for a third time. So it is in this context where he seeks to impress on the disciples, on you and me, that when you make the choice to follow Jesus, there will inevitably be times when the going will be tough precisely because you identify yourself as a Christian. At the moment, whether you're a Christian or not, we are being affected by increased energy prices, cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine, and so on. Now, one of the hallmarks of Luke's gospel is the focus on the outsider, the folks that have little or no status or influence or who are commonly sidelined by respectable society. They are often, as a result, extremely vulnerable. Justice, God's justice, anything resembling any kind of justice seems elusive to them. 
As a widow, the woman would have been in a very vulnerable position. Her late husband's possessions, estate, etc., would pass on to one of his male relatives, such as a brother or eldest son. Perhaps there were no male relatives. We don't know who this widow's adversary is or the nature of the justice that she seeks, nor do we need to. Bartley suggests that the kind of judge Jesus may have had in mind was a paid magistrate appointed by the Romans or Herod. Unless you had influence and money to bribe this kind of judge, who were commonly known as robber judges, there was very little chance of them finding in your favour. However, this widow persists in her pursuit of justice, of what is right. The judge makes clear that he's poorly qualified to dispense justice, and certainly not God's justice. Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. In the message, the verse reads, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. Clearly, this lady is in for the long haul. And she's not going to be brushed off, dismissed, deterred from pursuing the right path, difficult as that path is proving to be. Now, the parable is clearly not saying clearly not saying that this rotten judge bears any resemblance to God. After all, he's told us he doesn't give two monkeys for what God thinks, or anybody else for that matter. There are, of course, many people like that judge who have the same attitude to God, and a lot of other folks too. They're not interested in God. They might not believe in God. They may, like, unlike this judge, pursue justice. But they can pursue justice without any reference to God. Indeed, they may see God or his church, or at very least their perception of God, as being in opposition to what they regard as right or just. The French communist poet Prévert wrote, Notre Père qui est aux cieux, restez-y. Et nous nous resterons sur la terre. Our Father, who is in heaven, stay there, and we will stay here on earth. Prévert saw the church as part of the French establishment, who kept people oppressed and subjugated. And who can deny that throughout history, the church, in its various guises, has sadly provided much ammunition for folks of Prévert's persuasion. Jesus assures his disciples, you and me, that as our faithful, loving God, God isn't an obstacle 
to true justice and righteousness. Indeed, he is the source of all that is good. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Remember that as Jews, the disciples had been brought up to limit their prayer times to a maximum of three times a day in case they wearied God in the way the widow was wearying the judge. So what Jesus is saying here is a challenge to the disciples. Let's be honest, it's not hard to become discouraged when the going is tough and their prayers, no matter how often and diligent we are, seem to hit a brick wall. The Psalms are full of how long, Lord, type prayers. The New Revised Standard Version of the Bible translates Luke 18.1 as, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. I think the injunction not to lose heart captures the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Encouragement and hope isn't what we instinctively associate with the prophet Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah 31 we read, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out, to Egypt, out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put the law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. The early Christians believed that this promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Last week we were reminded by Miriam, a.k.a. the White Witch, and Gary, a.k.a. Aslan, that Jesus had to go to the cross and rise again in order to ultimately defeat death and sin and evil. You, me, the disciples, the widow, the tax collector and the Pharisee mentioned in the next section of Luke 18, nobody can reach God's standards of justice and holiness in our own right. Only Jesus could and did. We are totally dependent on God's mercy. Jesus was crucified and rose again not too long after he told this parable. And so from that perspective, his children, his chosen ones, those who receive him, do get justice and quickly. 
But we are in the in-between time. The time between Jesus' first and second coming. It is in the context of Jesus' second and final coming, when all that is evil and all that is opposed to God will be no more. That Jesus encourages us not to lose heart meantime. When Jesus poses the question about his second coming, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He is comparing the attitude of the lazy and faithless judge with the dogged and determined persistence of the widow. Jane Williams comments, which of these two attitudes, Jesus asks, will he find among his followers when the Son of Man comes? Will they have given in to convenience and the desire for a quiet life and gently dropped the stringent demands of the gospel? Or will they still be faithful? As we turn to Paul's second letter to Timothy, there can be little doubt that staying faithful to Christ through thick and thin is a major theme of this letter. This was Paul's last ever letter to the early church. It is poignant, challenging, encouraging, and hopeful. Paul's life is nearing its end. He is in prison in Rome and facing a trial, and the climate of Roman justice wasn't known to favour Christians at that point. Paul writes this pastoral letter to Timothy, who was a young church leader with dodgy health and a bit on the timid side, so perhaps not the most obvious candidate to carry on the work, particularly as a church leader. As Paul prepares to pass on the gospel baton to Timothy, he writes, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is the same Paul who wrote in Philippians, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul emphasizes the importance in a Christian's life of the Holy Scriptures. Of course, Paul is talking about what we today call the Old Testament. He reminds Timothy that from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Last week, we were looking at Mark's gospel, and in particular, John pointed out the apparent abrupt ending 
We wondered whether part of the original manuscript had been lost or whether this ending was intended. Over a considerable number of years, the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, including, of course, this letter, were gathered together until we have today's Bible. John mentioned the whole canon of Scripture, and that is very important. Context is everything. The bigger picture is everything. It is never safe. Indeed, it can be extremely misleading to focus on certain verses to the exclusion of whole chunks of the Bible, which we perhaps find less palatable or difficult to understand. Peter Pothin, who has lived and worked in India all his life, is the current contributor to Scripture Union's Encounter with God Daily Bible Notes, which happily for me is looking at 2 Timothy just now. He writes, Good doctrine is basic to Christian life. We need to handle the word of truth well. To do this, we must study the Word of God. There are false teachers in the world today, as in Timothy's time. And if we are not strong in the Word, we can be easily swayed. One prevalent heresy is the prosperity gospel, which is enticing in the affluent West and even for middle-class Christians in India. We should be awake and vigilant. I remember a presbytery dinner held for readers and ministry candidates. And a candidate was discussing his sermon preparation for the following Sunday. I can't get the Bible passage to say what I want it to say, he complained. A retired minister gently chided, shouldn't it be the other way around? As Christians, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. Tom Wright puts it like this. The early Christians believed, and this passage is one of the strong signs of this, that the reason the Scriptures were alive was because God had breathed them in the first place, and the warmth and life of that creative breath was still present and powerful. There are many books in the world written on many topics, but the Bible stands out. Tom Wright again. We should be able to see and celebrate the rich unity and diversity of the Bible and to use it for all it's worth in the many ways Paul now encourages. Or perhaps we should say to let it use us. The Spirit who caused it to be written who spoke through the different writers in so many ways is as powerful today as ever. And that power through the written word can transform lives. To begin with, the Spirit speaking through Scripture can make us wise, can help us think in new patterns, see things we hadn't seen before, understand ourselves and other people and God and the world, and ultimately find ourselves 
rescued, saved from the downward pull of sin and death. And by that, transformed by God's forgiving grace, so that we become part of his new creation. If we let scripture have its way with us, all this is within reach. Because, of course, scripture not only unveils the living God we know in Jesus Christ, but through our reading and pondering, it works this knowledge of God deep into our consciousness and even subconsciousness by story, poetry, symbol, history, theology, and exhortation. Scripture not only gives us true information about how our lives can be transformed, it will itself be part of that process. So Jesus encourages us to keep on praying and not lose heart. Paul encourages Timothy and you and me to keep on being transformed by the Spirit and the Scriptures. Are you on board? Are you up for the challenge? As Paul's life nears its end, he writes to Timothy, but you, keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. You take over. I'm about to die. My life an offering on God's altar. This is the only race worth running. I run hard to the finish, believed all the way. All that's left now is shouting. God's applause. Depend on it. He's an honest judge. He'll do right, not only by me, but by everyone eager for his coming. Amen.